0: for the Conservative Institute and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it would be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting those podcasts and leave a review those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And finally, if you can't find a place to leave the review, because I know some services just don't have them, sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow anyway, and so I'm always appreciative of hearing when you've shared this podcast with others. In this week's show, the first segment is going to be dedicated to the media outrage from this week, which is about Tucker Carlson, and why the substance of that outrage is wholly unimportant, but the focus on Carlson is actually important. You see, national cable news shows are drowning right now in their ratings, and they're desperate for an audience. So we're going to go through why that has happened and what they're doing to combat it. In the second segment, we'll do the COVID-19 update and talk about the record week we had on vaccinations. And then finally, the light item segment this week is dedicated to why the woke crowd on the left is mad again at the comedian Bill Burr, who was hosting the Grammys this weekend. So you'll get to hear the clip and then also hear Bill Burr's rant about the woke crowd in general. So that's that's the agenda for this week's show, and we'll jump right in. So this first segment, I said, was was dedicated to what I was calling a media outrage. And this was, for the most part, fully manufactured. Because I found it telling this past week that all my liberal friends were really focused in on the story involving Tucker Carlson. So if you don't know, Tucker Carlson is the host of a primetime show on Fox News. I believe it's the 9 o'clock Eastern show. So he made one of his typical inflammatory statements Uh, This time it was involving women in the military. Uh, You know, I could go into it, but just for the most part here, it doesn't really matter what he said. What matters is the focus that it got in the media and in the Biden administration overall, because the substance was unimportant. What is key here is what they're trying to do and make him a major person and a major issue. They made Tucker Carlson the issue when there's other major stories happening this week, I mean, t- uh, Tucker Carlson saying something, you know, even flagrantly dumb would not have been even a remotely top 10 thing in any media coverage in the Trump administration. It would have been about the major news stories. So if take an actual crisis that we have this past week at the southern border. We have things like kids going hungry, kids being exposed to the coronavirus with you know no real medical anything near there. There are tent cities down there that they're overflowing. You have the Biden administration denying immigration lawyers access to these immigrants, and more things like that. It is a true Blue humanitarian crisis at the border that was wholly created by the biden administration's policies particularly their executive orders. I've got a column coming out about this on Monday if you want to read it you can look at the conservative Institute but so you have the backdrop of a major story like that you have another major story of you know of the massive gains we're doing in vaccinations but no it's it's this this is the story that's important. And they're ignoring these actual things. And that's because they want Tucker to be the story here. And there's a reason they made him the story. The national media, particularly the CNNs and MSNBCs of the world, they're just flat-out tanking. We'll get into their numbers here, but Trump was a ratings bonanza for cable networks. And now that he's gone, they're suffering because people tuned in to learn about what the latest Trump news was. So one of the predictions that I made in my pre-election newsletter was that the media would try to keep Trump in the limelight because they couldn't survive without him. They would end up tanking, in fact, if they couldn't figure out a way to do that. And so without Trump or a quote-unquote Trump-like figure, they would look for someone like Trump in order to gin up outrage and boost their ratings, And that's where things are. They want Tucker Carlson to be that because they desperately need a Trump-like figure. So, and here's why. Because it's not just that ratings are down. It's that ratings have tanked. So here's where things stand. Variety released a story on March the 10th, so before any of this happened. And they reported that cable news in particular was suffering but some networks were suffering more than others. Variety was comparing the top nightly shows from Fox, CNN, MSNBC, and all the rest. And those are basically your main networks there. They all compete on the cable networks. So they were looking at who led the ratings and they were comparing them to two different periods. They were looking at the first period was November 30th to December 4th that week period there, so that is post-election, but before the January 6th stuff, and then they were comparing that to ratings of now, March 1st through the 5th. So you have, you you don't have to, you know, if you were comparing just the election coverage, if we were during that period of November, ratings would be massive, and you would expect a drop-off after that. It happens. But Comparing just a normal news period of, you know, November 30th to December 4th to now, you're going to get a clear picture of where things stand just in a typical news period. So those those are going to get you sort of what you would expect to be reality. And now you're also getting numbers of what it's like to be fully in the Biden administration. So here are the numbers. We're going to start out going through overall audience numbers and the drops in overall audience numbers across these And so we're going to do that first, and then we're going to do the key 25 to 54 years old demographic because the reason that's important is because advertisers look at who's watching in that category and determine how they're going to determine what networks they're going to advertise on. So that's where all the money is when it comes to these networks. They care a lot about who in that category is turning in, so they can serve that up to advertisers. But we're going to start here because All these shows have lost overall audience, but they've also lost in the key advertising demographic. So we're going to start here with total audience and and start it here. So first up, Rachel Maddow on MSNBC. She's lost 9.1% of her total audience. Almost a tenth there. That's quite stunning. Tucker Carlson on Fox News has only lost about 4.8% of his total audience from that period. Not quite as much, about half. Sean Hannity on Fox News has lost more. He's lost 11.9%, so almost 12% of his overall audience. The Ingram Angle uh, with Laura Ingram on Fox News has lost 9.2% of its audience. And then here's where we get into the real drop-offs here. This is, these are all the other shows and these other networks. First up here, The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC. He's lost 17.6% of his audience all in with Chris A, Chris Hayes on MSNBC, he's lost 16.7% of his audience. Chris Cuomo, his primetime show that they gave him because he was such a good and spectacular guy, they said. He's lost 28.5%, cut by more than a fourth. 28.5%. Anderson Cooper's CNN show, Anderson Cooper's 360 He's lost 32.2% of his audience, almost a full third. And then last here is Don Lemon, his CNN Tonight show. It's lost 32.5% of its audience, leading the pack. Cuomo and Don Lemon have both dropped by about a third. These are massive drops for these stations. These are, these are you know, worst case scenario numbers for them, and it's likely only just beginning, because that's just the audience overall. What is key for these networks is the 25 to 50 year old net, uh, demographic. That's the one where you've got to win that one if you're going to succeed long term. So in that category, Tucker Carlson is only down 2.3% at Fox News. Laura Ingram, also on Fox News, is down 13.6%, and Sean Hannity is down 17.1%. That is a lot. But those three have lost less than any of the other people we're about to go through. Fox News is surviving this a lot better than any of these other networks. Because next up here you have the best performing here of all, of all these other networks is Rachel Maddow on MSNBC and she's lost 17.7% of her audience among this group. And she's got the best of any of these left-leaning people. She has the best numbers and the best, you know, losses, you know, of this group. So 17.7% for Rachel Maddow. Chris Cuomo in his primetime show on CNN down 31.3%. Anderson Cooper down 32.9% on CNN. Don Lemon, down 28.6%. So the three of them together are averaging right there, about 30%. Lawrence O'Donnell, he's down 27.7%. And then finally, you have Chris Hayes, who has lost 29%. So, you know, it, it should be noted that if you're looking at this age group and these cable news shows, not a lot of them are watching Any of these channels, it's, you know, that 25 to 54, they've got better things to do. They're watching other channels, other shows, streaming, you know, so on and so forth. But Chris Hayes and Lawrence O'Donnell in particular have fallen so hard in this age cohort that they're barely registering 100,000 viewers in a night among this cohort. Barely 100,000. For comparison, Tucker Carlson has more than 400,000 in this age group watching his show. And again, Chris Hayes and Lawrence O'Donnell, both the same network, can barely hit 100,000. These are, you know, th- these are death march numbers if you're a cable news show host. If you can't pull in you know, 100,000 people to watch your show among this age cohort, you don't have people to advertise to according to these people. So these, this is, these networks are looking at this and saying, we're down losing money. We're losing money fast. We can't sell anything to these advertisers. So you have to have a membership to Variety in order to to get in and see the charts. I'm going to link to the piece. If you have one, feel free to go look through it. Uh, I'm also going to link, though, to some tweets that show these charts and what I was looking at here if you want to go through them yourself. Uh, The long story short, though, these cable news networks and the news hosts on them are just flat out getting bludgeoned here. This is the worst-case scenario for these outlets. They don't have viewers. They're clearly on a sinking ship, particularly CNN and MSNBC. They are taking on water fast. Now, you'll notice, too, here, the leader here in all these these ratings things, he has the most overall ratings. He's lost less than anybody else. It's Tucker Carlson in both age demographics. And so the same week that we learn all these numbers, and they all come out, All of a sudden, Tucker Carlson becomes enemy number one in the media. Now I'll say up front here, I don't care for Tucker Carlson. Uh, Whatever brand of conservatism that he has, I don't really support it. He's taken some really weird turns in his philosophical time on the right. He started out, he was one of the first people on the masthead at the Weekly Standard, and now he's representing some form of populism that he has that makes very little sense to me. It's not even... You know, you have sort of the intralogalist on the right, the, the Sorbomari Amari crowd. He's not even really even in that crowd. It's sort of a weird right-wing, pro-union stuff. It's It's not what I would consider any form of traditional conservatism. So I don't really have any philosophical agreements with him as of now. But he is leading the networks, and he is the top. And he's the clubhouse leader by a mile when compared to everyone else. And so now that makes him the enemy to these networks, because they can't have, hold anyone's eyeballs anymore and they're desperate for another Trump bump. It's like they they're drug addicts when it comes to Trump. They need that hit. And I predicted this would happen, but this is coming uh, this is happening a little bit differently than I think any of us could have foreseen. Um but the most telling part here, and this is not just me reading stuff into the things, because Brian Stelter, he's an anchor on CNN who has one of the weekend shows. He's also one of the big, biggest lying hacks on television. He, People joke that he's the media's janitor, because whatever the media has done that's awful, you can count on him to go and clean it up and say everything is fine. Well, he came out and basically said the quiet part out loud on his Sunday show before, and before hitting this quote. I'm going to note this, too. Brian Stelter's show on, on The weekend it's lost a million total viewers on CNN. So his head is also likely on a chopping block here. So he's in the same position as all these other shows. He just doesn't have anywhere near the ratings to stand on the same platform as these others. He's a nobody. But anyway, Stelter called Tucker Carlson the, quote, new Trump on his show, and that the media needed to treat, and, treat Tucker Carlson with the same regard as they did Trump. Now, note... What isn't the story here? It's not the border. It's not the pandemic. It's nothing like that. It's Tucker Carlson, the person beating these people at their own game. He's the, quote, new Trump. Now, of course, this is just, of course, ludicrous, Tucker isn't Trump. He's not a politician. He's just a cable news show host. He says stupid stuff pretty much all the time. But what's really happening here is that these people are just desperate for any kind of Trump. And they don't have Trump himself, so they're having to invent other people to become that because they desperately need the ratings. And these kinds of outrage flare-ups are the signal that the media is in the process of searching for a new Trump. They need someone like him because they are desperate for that attention. The thing that's hurting them here and the reason that they're having to search is that they actually don't have Trump himself. They were really hoping to have him. Uh, There was an interesting report, though, in Politico, and it doesn't sound like they're going to get that at all because Trump is basically adrift and right now, he doesn't seem to know what to do. The Politico report said that Trump has backed away from creating a third party. He's soured on the costly prospect of launching his own TV empire or a social media startup. His vow to target disloyal Republicans with personally recruited primary challengers has taken a back seat to conventional endorsements of senators who refused to indulge his quest to overturn the 2020 election. And though he was supposed to build a massive political apparatus to keep his MAGA movement afloat, it's unclear to Republicans what his PAC is actually doing beyond entangling itself in disputes with Republican icons and the party's fundraising arms. Donald Trump finds himself adrift while in political exile, and Republicans, and even some allies, say he's disorganized, torn between playing the role of antagonist and party leader. The version of Trump that has emerged in the month and a half since he left office is far from the political Godzilla many expected him to be. He was supposed to unleash hell on a party apparatus that recoiled when his supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th and declined to fiercely defend him during his second impeachment. Instead, Trump has maintained close ties with GOP officials who have committed to supporting incumbents, stayed almost entirely out of the spotlight, and delivered fairly anodyne remarks the one time he emerged and offered only sparse criticism of his successor, Joe Biden. So that's the Politico report. And so that's the other thing hitting these cable news networks. They don't have Donald Trump there to boost them while he's in exile in Florida, And Trump doesn't appear organized enough to do anything about that. And frankly, he doesn't even seem interested. Because I thought if he did the TV network thing, he would just use it as political leverage to make the networks more friendly to him. They wouldn't want competition from him, so they would just allow him to come on and do his thing. But so far, he hasn't even done that either. He really lacks any plan at all. There's no foresight here, and he's just spending his time aimlessly wandering around the golf courses and golfing. In my predictions, I was expecting him to be far more aggressive because there is ground for him to play here. I even have a column where I was calling for him to come out and do hold rallies and praise these vaccines that he pushed forward with Operation Warp Speed. And he's not even doing that, even though that would be a layup for him. It would put him, he would thrust him right back into the spotlight. It would allow him to praise these vaccines, which is doing a lot of good. The media would come out and attack him, and he would have all that fun. But he's not even doing that. He's been surprisingly quiet and, and done nothing while in Florida. But all that to say, this is why everyone is talking about Tucker Carlson right now. They want him to be this new Trump so in turn they can build the bone selves up because he's beating them in the ratings and they're sinking faster than the Titanic. So if Trump, and if Trump is going to continue being like this in Florida, where he's giving these networks nothing to cover, nothing, and they're, you know, they're not even going to attempt covering the Biden administration, that's pretty clear so far, that means they have nothing really to offer to viewers, which means they're probably going to lose even more viewers because there's nothing to watch. They can't do anything about Trump. Tucker Carlson is not going to be the new Trump, and they're not going to cover the Biden administration. So what are you going to do if you don't have anything there? That is the real problem for these networks. They don't have anything to offer to their viewers, and they are suffering because of it. So, you know, this is why you're seeing Tucker Carlson pop up. If you saw him in your news feeds and things like that, I mean, I had had some some truly angry, you know, fake angry lefties who were trying to become super outraged at Tucker Carlson. I just want to say, guys, you were screaming about kids in cages about two years ago, and that same thing is happening right now. Where are you? I mean, where are these people? These people who complain about executive orders, they're quiet when Biden has all these executive orders at the beginning of his administration. You had Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez calling ICE quasi-fascistic. You had her calling <laughs> these these organizations down here who are trying to you know deal with these immigrants and these floods here. She was calling them concentration camps. And all of a sudden, the cats caught her tongue because she can only offer mild criticism of Biden here. The same thing's happening. There's a flood here. It happened because of Biden's policies, because the flood happened in February. It's a direct outflow of Biden's executive orders. It's a major humanitarian crisis. Again, you have kids going hungry, being exposed to COVID, not being able to clean themselves, not being able to take showers. shower. All of this is happening at the border. It's happening in larger numbers than we've seen since 2019. This is that same story, and they can't cover that. They have to cover what Tucker Carlson said about women in the military. That apparently is the bigger news story here to the media. So they need ratings. They're not getting it, and that's why they're sinking. And if, they're just going to continue sinking, and I, you know, I don't feel too bad about that. A lot of these networks need to go under because they offer nothing to society. Some of these news hosts are just awful human beings. Some of them used to be kind of interesting. I mean, one of the ironies here is that the two top ones are Rachel Maddow and Tucker Carlson. They used to be pretty good friends who would banter back and forth on other networks and on radio and stuff. Uh, You know, now they're at the top of this. and They've quite clearly learn their trade but even she's going under right now so it's going to get very interesting for these news networks here i'm kind of hoping you know it's kind of like joking about a war between iraq and iran you just kind of root for injuries here this whole thing where cable news shows are losing traction and losing ratings over the next four years i'm not going to care too much if they go under so that's kind of what i'm rooting for here they're obviously lying about what the real story is here there is real news to cover It's not Tucker Carlson, and he's not the new Trump. So that's all for this segment, though. When we get back, we'll do the update on the COVID-19 numbers, so stay tuned for that. This is the first week I'm doing this update without the COVID Tracking Project, who has shuttered their daily... Uh, updates they were doing. I was kind of warning this over the past few weeks. I was able, however, to find a replacement for that data. There's a guy on Twitter who is compiling the same data and producing similar reports, and he's pulling it from the state, same state level dashboards that the COVID tracking project was doing. And so, when you compare sort of what they had before that, to what he has now, you're seeing there's sort of this clean line here. So, and he's got some solid comparisons here. To some prior data, so we're going to get to hit a lot of really good information here. So, testing is the first thing we always start off here, and testing continues to slowly drift down. Uh, though we're, you know, we're not anywhere close to where we were, um, you know, back in the early parts of it. But that's also not super concerning right now. The seven-day average on testing sits at 1.44 million, which is down from the previous week, where we were around 1.5 million. The peak on testing was January 15th, when we were around 2.2 million. So this is very clearly a drop. We're down about 32% on from the peak to where we are now but this also makes some sense just because we're we've administered a ton of vaccines and testing is just becoming less important. Week to week we seem to be dropping on the testing front about 5 to 10%, which you know makes some sense because that lines up roughly with what we're doing on the vaccine front. So this suggests that vaccines continue to take over the workload. For, the long, I mean, for about a year here, testing was the most important thing because we didn't have vaccines, but now that we have vaccines and we've administered a ton of them, testing is now losing its importance. I kind of said this at the beginning of the year when we started seeing some of these early signs that testing was dropping, and now that there's a clear pattern over several weeks, you can kind of see where things are headed now. So testing is falling, but I think that's a good sign overall. The positivity rate of those tests coming back, though, is at an all-time low. So this is the percentage of tests that come back positive for COVID-19. The seven-day percentage on that is 3.59%, which is a number we've never had in any non-surge time. So after the spring surge and after the summer surge, we never dropped this low. The lowest percentage that we would hit in those times after the spring and summer surges was right around 4.2%. About two weeks ago, we were around that same point, around 4.2, 4.3, and right now we're at 3.59%. So that is an 11% lower than where we have been. So the dropping on this, the, you know, when you're seeing this type of thing, this this tells you that the virus is in retreat. It cannot spread fast right now. It is spreading even slower than it has in any other previous time, which is why I believe these vaccines are working. They are reducing the spread of the virus because the positivity rate is shrinking. It is obviously shrinking slower now because you know, we're really at the. I mean, 4.1% would be where we normally were in a non-peak time without vir- without a vaccine. So the fact that we we're underneath that suggests that the vir- the the vaccines are really reining this thing in and preventing it from spreading further. So, the the peak number for the positivity rate was around 13% at the beginning of the year in January, and now it's at 3.59%, so that's about an 80% drop from where we were at the peak, an 80% drop in positivity rate. That is massive and significant. And as a result, the seven-day average on the number of new cases coming back daily continues to drop too. So the the national seven-day average on new cases currently sits at 51,000 a day. That is a drop from last week where it was fifty six thousand and then of course it's down the peak on that was January eleventh when the seven day average was two hundred and forty three thousand so from two hundred and forty three thousand to fifty one thousand that is basically an eighty percent drop in the number of new daily cases that is a massive drop from you know just those you know two months there from where we were. this is a huge drop, so the positivity rate is dropping the new case numbers are dropping. And so that kind of, you know, these things work together. And so if you're seeing that happen, that tells you that the vaccines are working. The other thing that tells us here is that hospitalizations continue to drop too. So the current active number of hospitalizations currently sits at 36,470, which is approaching the lowest number we've ever seen in a non-surge non time. We're now getting close to one of those you know, pre-spring surge times when we, you know, things first started. So the peak on hospitalizations was around January 13, and we had 132,000 active hospitalizations. So we've seen that number drop by more than 70% since the second week. And it's almost a complete 100,000 mark there, 100,000 hospitalization drop there. We're getting very close to that. Again, my line, which I keep pitching on this, I really want to see this number drop really below 30,000. I would like to see the hospitalization number drop below 30,000. That would truly show that the vaccines are working and in, it's reducing the number of overall vaccine, I mean, overall number of hospitalizations that we have. If you see that number drop, for the first mark here is 35,000 because we haven't really been below that number. And then the second, really the bell mark here would be 30,000. You drop below that, that is significant because we haven't been there since the spring of 2020. So that is a very significant mark here. So again, a 70% drop in the overall number of hospitalizations. That is huge. That is seismic. We should, you know, praise that completely. Um, I haven't had this number in past weeks, and that is the number on ICUs. So the number of people who aren't just hospitalized, but they're in an ICU. So this is the worst cases that we have those are plummeting too. The peak of people in ICU care was just shy of 24,000 nationally on January 14. That was a record. That number is now 7,400. It's another 70% drop from 24,000 to 7,400. Again, these are the most serious cases, which shows that we're really improving across the board we have nowhere near the number of severe cases that we've had in previous instances. 7,400 severe cases spread across the country. That is a huge improvement on our part. So again, hospitalizations are falling. ICU things, numbers are falling. You're, you're seeing 70, 80% drops here from the beginning of the year. These are just huge numbers here. And then the number of deaths is improving finally as well. After being stuck in around the 1,700 range for several weeks, the seven-day average on deaths has dropped around 1,200, which is down from a peak of more than 3,300 on January 13th, so that is... A, we, we've fallen 65% on the seven-day average of deaths. So, and these numbers should continue coming down too, just because we have fewer hospitalizations. There are fewer ICU cases. There's just fewer, there, there's less room for deaths to grow here. So we are beginning to hit the true tail end swing here. Uh, so we're, we're averaging 1,200 now, so that means the next major milestone here is we're going to be dropping below 1,000. And that is going to be a major milestone mark here. So keep an eye on that in the coming days and weeks. I don't really know when that's going to happen because there's such a lag with how deaths are reported. The fantastic news continues to be vaccinations. All news on the vaccination front continues to be good news. I said last week we would likely surpass the 100 million doses mark, and we did that on Friday. Overall, as of Sunday, we've administered 107 million vaccination doses across the country. 21% of the total US population has had at least one dose of a vaccine. That's one in five Americans, or nearly 70 million people. 11.3% of the population is fully vaccinated, which this week includes the Johnson & Johnson number vaccines. So that's approximately 37.5 million people are now fully vaccinated. If you only count the adult population, which is what really matters here, because kids under 16, they're mostly not going to be getting this because we don't have a, a, a child vaccine for this yet. If you only count that, then 27% of the adult population has had at least one dose of the vaccine, and that's more than one in four Americans. And then 14.5% are fully vaccinated. Those are huge numbers. Those are fantastic numbers. You know, we're, we're, we're growing every single day and every week. If you jump up and look not just at the adult population, though, and look at only the most vulnerable, and so that's counting anyone 65 and up, that is is what the CDC defines as the vulnerable age population, 63.4% of that cohort has had at least one dose. So that's 6 in 10 Americans in that age cohort have had at least one dose, and 35% of them are fully vaccinated, meaning more than one in three in that age cohort are fully vaccinated. So what that means and why that's so important is that we're far more along here in this key demographic than the general population numbers. And so if this specific age cohort can get fully vaccinated, then we're well on our way to achieving pretty much the end of hospitalizations being an issue and the end of the death rate and all that being an issue. Yes, you can still have hospitalizations and deaths among younger people but the overall numbers where you know all the bad numbers come from is going to be that 65 and up category and so if they are no longer in danger then you've eliminated this pandemic as an actual public health issue yes people can still get it but they're not going to get it in numbers that are going to worry you about the healthcare system so that is why i am so bullish on where we are and why this pandemic is going to be over much faster than people think, because people are wrongly looking at what we've vaccinated as a part of the total U.S. population. And again, you have to cut out kids because we're not vaccinating them. You also kind of have to only focus at the 65 and up crowd, because that's where your your worst-case scenarios, that's where the bulk of them are, if you eliminate them, then all of a sudden, your healthcare system, so your hospitals, they don't aren't holding the strain of having to treat all these people, your severe cases are going to start being eliminated, and your deaths are going to start being eliminated. So if those are not an issue, then the reason that we're having to do have restrictions and lockdowns is eliminated. I had a friend who was, who was saying, you know, we need to, you know, these lockdowns and restrictions are also about protecting people, because we don't want people to get the virus, which, has happened in a lot of these blue states. But that is also only partially true of what this is as a public health policy. Remember, flatten the curve is not about protecting people. It's about protecting the healthcare system because you don't want your healthcare system overrun with so many severe cases that care cannot be given to those people with that disease. And also care cannot be given to people with just your routine numbers who are coming in with your basic illnesses every day. If, that, if your healthcare system gets overrun, then you have more deaths due to lack of care. You don't want that. So what you're trying to do is spread out the number of cases that you have over time. That is why you introduced lockdowns, restrictions, and then everything else is about mitigation, where you're just trying to slow the spread of the virus enough to get you to the point of potentially a vaccine or herd immunity in some mean or fashion. And that's what we've done here. We have gotten to this point here, and we're going to get to the point where we've gotten rid of the most vulnerable part of our population that has this. They're going to be much closer to herd immunity. Again, I think that the protection that one dose gets you from Pfizer and Moderna is much higher than what the way they had their tests set up. They were pretty much banking on having to do two doses. There are other CDC, and I believe it's the New England Journal of Medicine, some reports out of them have suggested that if you have one dose from these vaccines, you have between 60 to 75% protection in that first two to four weeks, which is also on par with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. If that's the case, then you can probably lean on the fact that far more people are fully vaccinated in this one-dose group than we actually think. And if that's the case, you're going to see the spread of this virus slow down even more. So I'm very bullish on this. I think we're, we have fantastic numbers here because the most exciting news, I mean, that is all great news. All those numbers are fantastic and we're improving. but the best news on the vaccine front happened on Saturday. And on Saturday, we re- reported a record number of vaccination doses administered in a single day. On Saturday alone, we administered million doses in a single day. We've never been close to that. That was almost practically double the next closest day. And that moved the seven-day average on vaccinations up to two and a half million a day, getting us much closer to where I want to see us, which is three million doses a day. But what that one day total really tells us is that we have a much larger capacity of vaccinating people than just three million people. If we can do 4.6 million, and we're doing that with restrictions in place here on who we're vaccinating, and we don't fully have Johnson and Johnson in the field yet, we're just now counting them. They're going to they're going to flood the zone here pretty soon with even more vaccines because they're you know just a manufacturing lag here. They had initial doses ready; those went out. Then there's about a week or two lag here where they they're just preparing their next wave. So Johnson and Johnson is really starting about to to flood this field here with more. So that means we're probably going to be doing closer to 5 million in some of these days. And if that happens, the pace with which we can vaccinate, because then, you know, if you're averaging 5 million a day, that's 35 million Americans a week. That is huge numbers. If, if you just keep our current average of 2.5 million, that's nearly 18 million people who are getting, that's nearly 18 million vaccine doses going out the door. So the numbers here suggest that this is far faster than anyone in the healthcare establishment wants to admit, particularly your Fauci's. And so we're really seeing improvements here. If we can do 4.6 million, and that was a shock to everyone, then it is highly likely, especially when you see the vaccine supply double here in the next couple of weeks, that you're going to see closer to 3 to 5 million here on a pretty consistent basis, which is more than what any of the experts planned on, and it means that we're going to end this process a lot faster. Particularly, as as I said again, if we get that 65 and up category, if they are fully vaccinated and they hit herd immunity, We're not going to have an issue with hospitalizations and deaths, and this thing is no longer a public health threat, and that's going to end the public health threat much sooner. I mean, you know, we're we're doing all these credible numbers, and we're going to hit the finish line a lot faster than we think. It's basically the end point of this. So one of my criticisms of the Biden administration is that his guidance and speeches are well behind of where we are, that he's far too slow. And you can prove that point by looking at these vaccination numbers, and you can prove that point by looking at the economic data. So February alone showed a boom of nearly 400,000 new jobs. And those jobs, when you looked at where they were located, were mostly in restaurants and leisure jobs. So these are places where Americans are planning on gathering in groups Airlines, casinos, and other all those kinds of industries, they're also showing an uptick in all consumer activity. Retail stores like Target and Walmart, they're having to shift what they sell away from things like cleaning supplies and more towards more you know, group activities, fun things, and just regular grocery items. So you're seeing this sort of shift happen. Uh, it was either last week or in the newsletter or something, I was covering uh, the Wall Street Journal was doing reporting on this, and they said that these businesses and consumers are about six months ahead of where you are now. That's why you see this boom in February, because the demand is here now. There's a lot of pent-up demand in the economy to go out and do things, and the dam is breaking on that now. You don't hire 400,000 people in a month because you have work down the line. You hire 400,000 people like that in a massive way because you have work right now. And so, I think you can sort of expect more economic expansion here as people are going out and doing things because they have this pent up demand. You have more and more people who are going to be fully vaccinated. And so, you're going to see more people doing things. And so, that means the Biden administration is about six months behind here. That's just, you know, straight up. I know Biden was suggesting that we'd have small get togethers by July 4th. And that's a nice line. It suggests, you know, that our Independence Day will be the next, you know, great day in American history. And it's also wildly inaccurate. People are going to be gathering in mass during Easter and Memorial Day. You're going to see people all over the place having barbecues and group activities on Memorial Day as a fact. I can guarantee that's going to happen. And who's going to blame them? Because if you invite everyone in a group and they're vaccinated, you're not going to fear anything, I know Fauci and others are claiming otherwise, but people are not stupid. Economic activity proves that people are ignoring what the Fauci's of the world are saying, and they're doing their thing. Just as the beginning of the pandemic, before they declared a pandemic, we had the the actual recession for this pandemic began in February, not March. It began in February, late February, and that suggests that Americans saw what was coming before the experts were able to declare pandemics and say, you know, lockdowns. People were already doing that. And so by the time everything had, was closing up on March 11th and March 12th and 14th, you know, all those key dates there in March were just crazy stuff was happening every day. We were already well into the depths of the Depression I mean, not a depression, a recession, and people had already acted. And so when government officials started, you know, finally instituting lockdowns, like here in Tennessee, we had our first lockdown, April 2nd. Well, it was already too late. (laughs) Everybody was already locked down and tried to figure out what to do next. People are not stupid. You cannot lie to them like this. You have to give them accurate information and being behind like this, being six months behind like the Biden administration is, is the definition of leading from behind. You have to realize where people are right now, what they're doing. If you don't want them doing that, then you need to reflect that. But they're not doing that. They're just kind of dragging their feet here because they know, ultimately, nothing they say truly matters here. So the, the lone threat here that you do have to keep an eye on is the continuing threat from COVID-19 variants the there is a newer variant that is that c- could you know could be dangerous here and that is out of new york and it's gaining some traction there uh, it shows some of the same mutations that we've seen in, in variants like the south african mutation uh, and in new york that variant is starting to take over as well as the dominant strain i believe i saw some some statistics that it was should be around 40% of all the new cases uh, but again even if it's taking over new cases and hospitalizations are not increasing they're continuing to go down which suggests at this time even though we have evidence of a threat potential threat that could be you know could get around the vaccination somehow it's not producing more cases and it's not producing more hospitalizations it's not producing severe cases right now And so, you know, this is like the UK strain or the South African strain, Brazil and others. We know these alternative strains exist. Moderna is even testing a a, a modified vaccine to deal with them. But vaccines are continuing to reduce the spread of these viruses, and they're reducing the severity of them. And so we, we know this, of course, because we see the numbers. The positivity rate has never been this low. The hospitalizations are following that same path. So if those numbers start increasing, then we can start dealing with new variants and, you know, maybe things we need to do to combat that. But until there is proof that a new variant has arrived that fully nullifies vaccine protection. And what I mean by that is that nullifying vaccine protection means that people are can have the vaccine, can be fully vaccinated and they're still ending up in hospitals and dying as a result of COVID-19. That's what it would take to reconsider this. You have to have that key thing there. And without that, we cannot plan on reopening. You cannot be so pessimistic that you presume that the variant is defeating your vaccine plan. And also, the other thing here is that if it truly does defeat the vaccine, the ones that we have, the mRNA vaccines alone we can modify through CRISPR Uh, which is a specific kind of biotechnology, and we can have an answer for that pretty quickly. And if the Biden administration doesn't drag its feet, they can reintroduce that modified vaccine pretty quickly. And that's what we need to do in that case. So we're going to know, we already know what the what these variants are. We're tracking them. So it's just a matter of figuring out how they fit in with our vaccines. We can modify our vaccines to match them so that, anyway, we do that with the flu. We do that with all these sorts of things. We knew that was a possibility going in, but we don't have evidence here that these variants are taking over and producing worse results. And until we have that information, we cannot plan as if that's going to happen. You have to plan as if the vaccines are working, because all evidence suggests that they are. And we're we're seeing the same thing. I mean, for me, the key country here is Israel. We're seeing these results there. More than half of their country is fully vaccinated, and case numbers among the vaccinated cohort have dropped by 94%. And if your case numbers have dropped 94%, then your hospitalizations have dropped even more because those are a smaller subset of your new cases. So if that happens among our vaccinated groups, and all evidence points to the fact that it is, then there's not going to be any threat here for us to have to worry about restrictions or lockdowns. So, and and in reality, dealing with these variants is not the question the Biden administration needs to be, you know, thinking and asking about. And it's not the question I'd be asking him. My question for the Biden administration is this. Why aren't you pushing harder to get AstraZeneca's vaccine into the approval process and into arms in the United States? It's already been approved in the United Kingdom. It's been approved in the European Union, although caveat there. Yeah, we'll come to that in a second. Um, It's been approved in these places. It's being used. Millions upon millions upon millions of these doses have gone out. They've been proven effective, and they are working We have actual AstraZeneca vaccine doses sitting in warehouses in the United States going unused. We just have not approved them for use. The Biden administration, if they truly are serious about ending this, need to go to AstraZeneca and get this thing approved now. We know it works. We've seen it work in these other countries. The FDA and the approval process is the red tape preventing these vaccines from going into arms. I would have no problem going into that warehouse and having one of those vaccines right now. I've seen them work in the United Kingdom, they should be used here in the United States. It is a travesty that we're not. Because we have we could be we could have four here. We could have four vaccine manufacturers actively going right now and we only have three. We could have four. And by May, in the newsletter, I pointed out Novavax's vaccine is showing just fantastic results across the board, across just about all variants. We're going to approve that one. All the evidence looks good to that. I don't know a single scientist who's looked at that data and said, oh yeah, no, they're not going to get approved. They're going to get approved. Just like we knew Johnson & Johnson was going to get approved. Novavax will too. And the Biden administration needs to move to cut down that speed. We wasted about a month waiting for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine to get approved. We don't need to waste another month with Novavax. We're wasting time not having AstraZeneca. We could have, if if they actually decided to move and do something here, we could have five vaccine manufacturers on the market cranking out vaccines, which would end this a lot faster because we would have more needles in arms. But they're not doing that. In fact, they're doing nothing on this front. And that's my key problem with the Biden administration. They have done very little to change where we were already headed under the Trump administration and Operation Warp Speed. The only thing we've seen the Biden administration do here is change the names of things. They claimed that they have helped push forward a more cohesive federal response, which maybe could be true. It doesn't really matter because vaccine administration is totally in the hands of state governors under the Constitution and the state legislators. So there's not a lot the federal government can do here. What we mainly did, and what we've already done, is buy the doses and give them to the states. That was already done. So the Biden administration hasn't done anything there. They did the thing where they used the Defense Production Act to help produce the supplies to make these vaccines faster. I would have expected the Trump administration to do the same there, so that's nothing really new here. So really all we have is that they're not doing more than what they could here to prove stuff in the FDA. If Biden wants some real credit he should seek to get AstraZeneca-approved ASAP to give us that fourth vaccine on the market and then speed up the Novavax approval process. Because Trump did everything in his power to do this. He was threatening to fire people in the FDA if they did not immediately approve Pfizer and Moderna and move that process along. And so that, that moved things, and we got those out, and we started getting them into arms. Compare that to what Biden is doing now on the same thing. He's doing nothing. And so that's really all you need to know on the differences between them on this. Trump acted swiftly. Biden is slow. And we're very fortunate that we already had up, we were already set up for rapid success with the vaccines because the Biden administration is slow to move on anything here. And I said I was going to make a comment here on Europe and and AstraZeneca, and I will here because my my last column was about Europe and how they have just utterly failed to deal with the vaccine. Their rollout of vaccines has been just a flat-out disaster, and they've been using the AstraZeneca vaccine, just like the UK. And the reason it's a disaster now, even more than it was before, is because you have countries saying that they're going to halt vaccinations with AstraZeneca because of concerns. And I, I say that with as many quotation marks around as that I can because there is no scientific concern here. So what these countries are saying, I think it's like Ireland, uh, the Netherlands, and some other, they're saying that there are these concerning anecdotal stories in the media about blood clots resulting from the vaccine. There was a story, I believe is in Denmark, where two women died due to blood clots after getting the vaccine. So here's the deal. AstraZeneca released a report. They said that they have handed out... Mm, well over, I think it was like between 10 to 20 million vaccination doses, maybe more. And in the in those, they've had a handful, maybe 15, 20 total people who have died of blood clots. And they cannot prove that those were related to the vaccine because in a general population, blood clots happen all the time and there is no correlation between the vaccines and blood clots utterly none. Even the United Kingdom came out and said, you know, we we see absolutely no proof here. There's We're going to continue pushing forward. The numbers prove this is working and we're not seeing anyone dying because of blood clots. And they would know. They cranked out twenty five over 25 million vaccination doses. So if there was a problem here, you would have seen it there or you'd have seen it in Israel. Neither of those countries have seen anything. But these European countries are doing that and saying no. And so they, I, I just, I never want to hear Another person in the United States, another one of these progressive technocratic type people say that Europe always follows the science, because science dictates that you do not stop your vaccine process due to a stupid media report. But that's what they've done here. This is not following the science. This is just utter nonsense. And so these governments, are. some of them are saying they're going to delay for about two weeks here, administering any more vaccination doses. Which means they're going to see case counts go up, and it's going to result in more people dying because they're not going to be able to get a vaccine. That is a true travesty. But that's where we are. And, you know, Europe and its vaccine rollout, the European Union in particular, it's just a complete and utter disaster. The difference between them, I mean, if you want your points here, it's it, it's Brexit looks brilliant right now because the U.K. can ignore all this nonsense and just vaccinate its population while the Europeans are just dithering here. Europe is literally three months behind the United States and the U.K. and Israel on doing all this. We're going to be fully vaccinated, and so is the U.K. I don't know where Europe's going to be on this. I know several other countries are look like they're heading into a third surge. They should be vaccinating their people but now they're dragging their feet. That is a travesty, and I'm really glad I'm not in one of those countries right now. So that's going to wrap us up for the COVID-19 update. I could probably go on that for a little more, but we're just going to move into the light time for this week, which again is brought to you by the comedian Bill Burr. Late Sunday, he was trending on Twitter because he offended the woke crowd on the left. Now, he did this again. He's done this multiple times. They've tried to cancel him multiple times, and it has never worked. So, Bill Burr enjoys doing this kind of thing. He was hosting the Grammys and announcing various categories. One of the categories, again, he's a white guy, so one of the categories he was announcing was the Latin music category. And without any warning, Bill Burr came out and started giving commentary on the fact that he, a white guy, was announcing the Latin music category. So here is the clip that enraged the left and made them want to cancel him again.
1: Was I the only one who wanted to kill himself during that piano solo? Uh, <laughs> I bought a suit for this. I thought it was going to be on TV. I'm such a moron. I am losing so much money right now. All right. Shout out to all the rock stars that I wanted to meet tonight who are watching at home instead. I'm talking to you, Don Dokken. All right. What, I'm old. That was my first concert. All right, here are the next categories. All right. Hey, how many uh, feminists are, like, going nuts? Why is this this white male doing all this Latino stuff? Uh
0: (laughs) So there you go. Bill Barr getting canceled once again. If you're not aware, this is, again, I keep emphasizing the again because he specifically went after... Uh, progressive woke white women and he did this on SNL. It was I guess it was a few few months ago, maybe a year or so ago. And they tried to cancel him after this because he went after them specifically, so this was kind of a shout back in a way. Here's what he said on SNL. So you'll see why they tried to cancel him before.
1: I gotta tell you, the way white women somehow hijack the woke movement, generals around the world should be analyzing this. <laughs> Just to refresh your memory, the woke movement was supposed to be about people of color, not getting opportunities, the at-bats that they deserved, finally making that happen. And it was about that for about eight seconds. And then somehow, white women swung their Gucci booted feet over the fence of oppression and stuck themselves at the front of the line. I don't know how they did it. I've never heard so much complaining in my life from white women. My name is hard uh, With my SUV in my heated seats. You have no idea what it's like to be me. <laughs> Trash and white guys. The nerve. Where's the camera? The nerve of you white women. Let me, I, listen, I don't want to speak ill on my bitches here. Okay? I don't. Well, let's, let's go back in history here. Okay? You guys stood by us toxic white males through centuries of our crimes against humanity. You rolled around in the blood, muddy, and occasionally when you wanted to sneak off and hook up with a black dude, if you got caught, you said it wasn't consensual. Yeah, that's what you did. That's what you did. So why don't you shut up, sit down next to me, and take your talking to? <laughs>
0: so that of course means people are going to try and cancel him again and it will fail again in fact he'll probably end up making more money cuz that's just how it's going for him if you're if you're a fan of the mandalorian bill burr is also the same guy he was the the mercenary with the boston accent so that is bill burr and in, again it's not his first time taking swings at the far left Liberal or progressive socialist white women, it will not be the last. They. Uh, and, and this guy, I mean, he's he's a lefty himself, so he's taking a swing at the people on his own side. So it's pretty funny that he takes regular aim at him, so... That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.